episode of No Need to Ask podcast. My name is Amani Duncan, and I will be your host on this journey. I am very excited about this episode. I think it's very timely and really important, and I'm even more excited about our guest today, Teddy Tenson. Uh, he is currently a contributing reporter at the New York Times. He is also a creative consultant for the Academy Award-winning director Steven Sonnenberg. Previously, Teddy worked as a fashion assistant with the late designer Oscar De La Renta. Then he went to Vogue working with Andre Leon Talley, followed by contributing roles at Andy Warhol's interview and Hello, Mr. Magazines. Select media that you can find some of Teddy's work is in the Wall Street Journal, W Magazine, GQ, New York Magazine, Essence, Refinery29, High Snobbery. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And Teddy is a graduate um, at Syracuse University. So without further ado, please welcome to No Need to Ask Podcast, Teddy Tenson. Hi, Teddy. Hello, 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 Amani. Thank you so much for having me. Well, like I said earlier, I am so excited to have you on my little podcast. This is going to be um, such a great show with such a great topic. And I just, you know, feel it's my duty on this platform to keep highlighting stories. As you guys all know, I love to tell stories and highlight stories of people that I admire and respect. So I'm, I'm just really excited to get into this topic with Teddy. But before we, we drill down, um, you know, if you go to uh, Teddy's website, which is teddytinson.com, um, it's a beautiful website, everyone. I highly suggest that you visit it. But there is this beautiful poem by um, the poet Naraya Wahid, and it goes to say, give in to your uniqueness, the very thing you've been fighting not to be in your whole life is the very thing that is your genius. And so, Teddy, I, I would love to start out with you um, telling us, like, why did you pick this poem to be kind of the centerpiece, um, you know, like the opening statement to your website? Well, thank you very much. Um, I stumbled across uh, that poem, uh, I want to say, sometime in 2018 when I was uh, building the site, which came out of a necessity for me to uh, put myself out there because I've been working behind the scenes for over a decade, um, really helping groom um, talent, um, many of your faves, faves um, across industries. And so this was really a way of me putting myself out there for the first time, really, and also... Um, really owning the parts of myself that I've been um, a little loath to fully embrace, including both my blackness and my queerness. 
because mm-hmm. I was um, raised to be confident and yes, I'm black and I'm proud and I came out in my early teens and so that the struggle of it all was never really an issue. So it was only in my late 20s working in the industries that I work in where my blackness and my queerness started to become issues um, in the workplace, in society and dating and all of these areas of life. And so that poem really just spoke to me in a way that um, allowed me to really embrace the fullness of who I am. I love that. Wow, what a what a journey. I, I'm just like, I have so many questions that I will hold just a bit because I, I want to dig more into your illustrious career. Um, I am a fashion file. I love all things fashion. Um, and I love the written word. So you're like the perfect combination of two of my loves. And you've written for so many magazines and publications that we all, you know, keep and read on a daily basis. So I'm just curious, like, how did, you know, all of this come together for you as a career? I mean, there's film, there's fashion, there's journalism. Um, You know, for me personally, I didn't strive to be in the music industry. I was always in my mind destined to be an attorney. And so I kind of fell into my career in the music industry um, really just kind of spontaneously. It was just like almost happenstance. And it it was a combination of being at the right place at the right time um, that led, you know, to me actually getting my first job in the industry and the rest is history. So talk to us about like, how did, how did all of this come together for you? It really was a divine intervention. I mean, that's the, that's the best way to put it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I studied um, a multitude of things in school. Um, I've been a lifelong artist. I was always in acting and singing and dancing lessons growing up. Um, and painting and drawing and all that stuff as well. And so it wasn't until um, maybe middle school when I really got into fashion. Uh, And then high school, I would design things for friends. And then in college, I started, I I added design to my studies. Um, But because I was at Syracuse um, and studying other um, classical art forms, I, the, the fashion program wasn't as robust as I needed it to be uh, because I wasn't at like Parsons or FIT or something like that. Right. So my teachers really understood that and they really nurtured me and encouraged me um, to, you know, intern as, as quickly as possible. And so I uh, started interning um, with Mr. De Laurenta as my first internship, which was, you know, a, a point of divine intervention unto itself. And that's incredible. Where, <laughs> that's where I met uh, Mr. Andre Leontali my second week there. And we bonded because, you know, of course, I was the only one. <laughs> mm mm-hmm. And I was good and I worked hard and and all those things. But um, so they took a liking to me and then that really just um, snowballed my career. So from there, um, it's really been about relationship building and about uh, really just, you know, hang gliding 
one thing to the next. So I've had a rather uh, non-traditional career path, partly out of necessity, but also partly because of my multidisciplinary background. So, you know, talking about fashion and diversity, do you find that there are more people of color in, um, you know, positions within fashion houses? Like, has it, you know, what's the trajectory been from your point of view? Has it gotten better or is it still um, a struggle to have a representation um, in the fashion industry? That's a good question. There is still um, a lack of equity across the board. Breaking the TV news mold. Um, can you talk to us about why that particular article was one of your favorites? That particular story means a lot to me because it reminded me of all the women who shaped who I've become. Um, And so for me, it was really important to showcase um, as objectively as possible, of course, but Sonny Austin, Maya Wiley, and Zerlina Maxwell, because I I think they represent three different types of black beauty. They're Mm -hmm. all lawyers. And they've also made these career pivots as political pundits and or analysts um, and really just showing the, the breadth and the depth and the scope of who and what we are as a people and how many factions that is and how it's all excellent and how that manifests through hair. Um, shortly, while I was working on that story, that's when the, the hair laws started to change in New York and California. I think the protective style movement over the last decade or so is really inspiring just to showcase the fullness of who and what we are and how we can express ourselves through our exterior and being, like Sonny said in the, in the article, you know, people think if you're glamorous or if you pay attention to what you wear, how you do your hair, that you're not smart. And that's just mm-hmm. true. And and that's, we have to dispel those myths as well. Going to actually link in the description for this episode, the um, uh, article, because I think it's really important for everyone to just take a, take a read because I feel it will resonate with most of our listeners. So thank you, Teddy, for sharing that. Um, I, I can only assume you received a lot of positive feedback. Something to be said, and there, there's historical precedent for this, going back to slavery, that, you know, the idea of Sunday's best, we always have to put our best foot forward in every aspect of our lives just to be seen and to be be heard. So right. it's not about, I like these shoes or I like that outfit or I like this hairdo. It's about what's going to allow me to succeed, what's going to best set me up for success. Mm-hmm. It's so true. I remember my, my father would leave home every day in a three-piece suit and tie every single day and he worked abroad um for many years he worked in Saudi Arabia and I would always ask him why did he dress up to go to the airport and he said it was just easier 
to maneuver and get through customs and immigrations um, if you had a white collared button shirt on and a suit jacket. So it, 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 yeah, and it's so amazing the stories of our youth that our parents pass on to us. They may not have um, a profound impact at the time that they're sharing the story, but as you mature as an adult, it definitely takes on a very different meaning and has a very profound impact in our lives. Um, I feel like we're wearing our Sunday best, or at least I'm wearing my Sunday best every day that I wake up. So really true. I also want us to be able to show up to the airport in sweatpants and slides and that be okay too, because I think the slippery slope Sunday's best it falls into respectability politics a bit and that can be dangerous as well and so we want to be able to inhabit our fullness and that's okay too you know jump right into our topic because it's it's going to be good and and I feel like I'm also going to walk away with a tremendous amount of learning so the topic is the intersection of blackness and queerness um can you kind of talk us through like what exactly is that it's the moment we're living in it's American history Um, I emphasize American history because, you know, uh, we are American. Black people are American. And if you're an immigrant, then there are some cases where you're African-American. But I really want to embrace blackness, you know, um, Mm -hmm. is beautiful. Black power, Black Lives Matter, all Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we're American. And I think it's important in this moment that we stake that claim because so many people try to rob us of that identity. And when we think about whether we're talking slavery or through the Harlem Renaissance, through the civil rights movement, and even to Stonewall riots with Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, We've always been at the intersection of blackness and queerness. Always saved us, whether we're talking from a point of culture or a point of policy. So a personal hero of mine is Mr. Bayard Rustin. He is responsible for organizing the 1963 March on Washington. He was a key advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he was pushed into the shadows because he was openly gay. And... You know, it was advised that he not be the face, not to muddy the messaging of of Dr. King or the optics of that. Oh, so quick question on that. When you say he was advised, are you referring to people within the movement? People within the movement, yes. Much like we see today with 
the Black Lives Matter movement, why we have to clarify all Black Lives Matter, including queer and trans people, and even women, because oftentimes the Sandra Blands and the Breonna Taylors are left out of the conversation, right? Before we get to the Tony McDades or the Malaysia Bookers or, or the Nina Pops of the world. Um, we're still fighting intra-community racism in the form of colorism and homophobia and transphobia, queerphobia, and also misogyny, right? Which right. Which into everything. Um, in spite of the civil rights movement, been rumored that there were people that were, uh, you know, whispering that maybe he and Dr. King were lovers, which isn't true, but the optics of that um, really pushed him outside of it. Also coupled with the fact that he was known to um, engage in interracial relationships. Um, so not only was he out and proud, but he was also um, invested in interracial relationships. And so that did not bode well for certain leaders within the movement, not Dr. King himself, but other frontline leaders. Wow. I mean, I, I was... You know, I'm just going to put it out there. I was not aware of Bayard until you and I talked about it, um, which speaks volumes because I'm, I'm an educated black woman. Um, minimizing the voices of, of incredible thought leaders like Bayard um, simply because of their choices. It just it's just like racism internally, you know, bigotry and within the race and outside of the race. And um, it's just I don't know. I just still it still hits me hard when I hear stories like this, Um, because it was it was like he's he's respected as, you know, a leader within the movement, but then not respected as a leader in the movement. I mean, think about, think about our language today, right? Most of what is the, uh, American colloquial lexicon. I mean, they say throwing shade on the 10 o'clock news across the country, Hmm. right? (laughs) Exactly. That comes from Paris is burning. That's Mm -hmm. culture, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about the hair is laid. We talk about slang. You know, many of the words used by straight white men and women started and originated in queer, black, and brown spaces. So, you know, the only thing I can connect that to is ignorance. Like, I don't think they even realize where it comes from. No, because it's been so sanitized over time. Right. Right. And And because we're forced to because marginalized people, by and large, uh, much like my career trajectory, like we remarked on before, that innovation oftentimes comes out of necessity. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we're not afforded the same opportunities as our peers or white peers or whatever it may be. We're forced to innovate. So by the time, you know, people are saying throwing shade. (laughs) okay that that's that's last decade last century last mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, even let's just even talk about Madonna, you know, and the whole voguing, you know. Absolutely. It's like a prime example. Did we even realize the origins of voguing? Like, I just, you know, it kind of makes me think about subconscious and even conscious biases. Like, you know, are, do people, is it just subconscious? Like, or is it just okay because one of the biggest pop stars in the world made it okay. I don't know. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a not either or, but both, as most mm-hmm. of them are, you know? Right, um, right. You think that, you know, why is this book the one that's making the change? And I say because they're going to hear that message differently from a aged white woman than they will from you or me mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Angela Davis <laughs> or mm. <laughs> Tony Moore. Yeah, the or, list goes on and on. You know? Amazing. Amazing. So I, you know, I want to also touch on, you know, going back in history with Bayard, um, you know, talk to us about like the circle that, or, or how he used his influence. I really want people to walk away from this episode with a very clear understanding of, um, the impact that was made, um, from a person that was deemed not appropriate. To be upfront. So this is this is nothing new. Let's take it back to the beginning, the first besties, if you will. Uh, or it's not the beginning, but a sort of origin story. It's Langston Hughes and it's Zora Neale Hurston, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. black and queer literary icons. So Langston writes. Harlem, his his series of, of poems, uh, which includes the Dream Deferred, and this is fifty one or so. Mm-hmm. Lorraine Hansberry, another black and queer literary icon, who was forced to hide the exploration of her own LGBTQness, um, is inspired and writes a Raisin in the Sun based on a line from one of Langston's poems. Mm-hmm. She has this unfinished work called Young, Gifted, and Black. At this time, she befriends Nina Simone. Nina Simone is known as a musician, but in the early 60s, she becomes galvanized by her posse, which includes not only Hansberry, but also James Baldwin and who Bayard Rustin. So they're all essentially Nina Simone's peer teachers. So they're going to organizing meetings, secret uh, organizing committees and whatnot, um, leading up to the 63 March on Washington. Mm-hmm. Lorraine Hansberry dies at age 34, mind you. <laughs> Incredible. In 1965. So in 68, Nina Simone, having processed her grief, is inspired by Hansberry's Young, Gifted, and Black and writes the song To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, which becomes an anthem for us all. Um, And so in 2018, when I was going through my, you know, odyssey, um, my maturation, 
I decided to tag on and queer, right? To highlight the intersection of all of my heroes of Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry and Nina Simone. Because Justin mm-hmm. Hughes, of course, as well. Because oftentimes this information is only shared in, you know, the the halls of universities and colleges, right? Um, yes. Oftentimes, they're seen through either a, que- a queer lens or a black lens, but rarely if ever both. And they're all of these things, right? And mm-hmm. so I really think it's important that we, much like, you know, uh, the New York Times is brilliant, 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 Nicole Hannah-Jones, who oh. shepherded the 1619 Project. Amazing. Simply amazing. Of slavery and how it persists today. And it impacts every facet of society, American society as we know it. Uh, you know, I think it's time that we do that for our queer, our black and queer heroes as well. I, I could not agree more. And thank you for just so eloquently um, talking about this and, and, and the, you know, I love to say like six degrees of separation, how everything is connected um, and has been connected. You know, we, we can no longer um, ignore it. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the fabric of the black of black history. And it needs to be highlighted. Um, You know, we, we, we all know what's going on, you know, um, and I also think with all the civil unrest, um, perhaps we're perhaps um, we're at the brink of, of, of really making sustainable change. And, and I say perhaps not to be a cynic, um, but to be a realist, because you and I and so many other black people, we've, we've lived this before, you know, and we know, uh, what the results have been, um, how the fervor and the anger and the excitement and passion will dissipate. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful and encouraged, you know, um, the Supreme Court ruling that just uh, passed to, you know, uphold the 1964 Civil Rights Act to protect gay and transgender Americans from workplace discrimination, um, you know, seems like we're including um, transgender LGBTQ uh, black Americans. Would you agree with that or do you feel there's still a distinct line of delineation um and uh what can we do as a group of vocal and powerful um people to help change that absolutely well i think similarly you know the March on Washington 63 was so important because of the number of civilians that turned out, but also the number of bold faced names that turned out. So, you know, in addition to the actual March, there was a Hollywood round table that included Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, James Baldwin, Charlton Heston, 
uh, Marlon Brando and Joe Mankiewicz. And it was really important um, to have white allyship of grade A-list caliber um, showcasing solidarity, right? So uh-huh. there's precedent for the, the allyship that we're seeing today, but again, we can't let it dissipate. Regarding the trans movement, I still feel like it's only LGBTQ people advocating for queer and trans people, unfortunately, because like we saw with Ayanna Dior as the the first wave of protests were happening following the gruesome murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. Ayanna Dior had, I don't know what, 10, 20 guys mm-hmm. up on camera. So, and you know, far too often when I see black celebrities on Instagram Live or on a nightly news program, they're mostly mentioning the straight men's names who have been murdered by police. Right. They're rarely mentioning Nina Pop or Tony Dade, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so I think we have a long ways to go in terms of re-educating our own community in terms of the LGBTQ experience, because I think many people still treat it as a choice or a lifestyle as opposed to just a state of being, right? And then also know what happens within the queer community and the racism that persists there as well. I was heartened to see a couple of uh, acquaintances gather on Fire Island for a Black Lives Matter demonstration. But in talking to them, they some were aware, others were unaware, but happily enlightened um, about the exclusivity of Black people on Fire Island and how ironic it is to have a Black Lives Matter demonstration when there are rarely any Black people included in the tea dances or just Mm. the weekends out, right? So we have Mm. a lot of, it's not about calling people out as much as it Mm. is calling them in, right? Because this is a community effort. And I think we as civilians and community organizers have much more power than we realize. And we have the power to shape and change policy. So how could someone like me get involved I think it's really about just like we tell our white friends acquaintances colleagues etc etc to you know have these conversations at the dinner table with their with their families it's 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 exactly the same for us I think it's about making sure that women are not erased from the Black Lives Matter movement, just the way in which their names have tried to be erased from the civil rights movement, right? There were right. so many women. I mean, we know about just one case in point. Everyone knows Rosa Parks, sure, but like mm-hmm. even Mahalia Jackson's influence, right, on the movement. Um, mm-hmm. And so today, it really is about making sure that women and queer folk are included in the Black Lives Matter conversation. And I think that, you know, when I've spoken to 
some black and brown people, they're saying, we don't have time for that or wait Hmm. to get to the queer issue. We got to, we got to worry about the black issue first. And it's like, well, I'm both Hmm. of those things and I choose the chicken or the egg. Like, right. I'm, I'm both all the time, whether I want to be or, or not. Right. Which is a typical coming of age story of like, oh, I wish I were different when you're 12, yeah. 13 or 14. Right. And, you know, you just got to embrace it. And I, I, black is beautiful. Queerness is exactly Right? Exactly. We have to stop compartmentalizing. Um, you know, race is race. You know, um, uh, injustice is injustice. It doesn't have various levels, you know. Um we're in this together. So I, you know, I stand with you. I agree 100% that the conversations need to be had like we talk about everything else. And even if it's uncomfortable, it doesn't matter. It still needs to be had. Um, and I also, you know, have, have counseled a lot of my brothers and sisters over the past several weeks that, you know, we also need to make sure that we're educated, that we're reading up and and or rereading, you know, um, we have to make sure that our community knows its history because we definitely know it wasn't taught in school, you know, um, and not everyone went to college and decided to, you know, take an African-American studies course. And you can't take for granted that every black person is an expert on black history. Um no, and we have to humble ourselves and say, you know what, as I'm recommending these books to my white friends or counterparts or colleagues, let me make sure I've read them, <laughs> you know, so that I can speak from a place of not just emotion and passion, but a, but a place of knowledge. I believe it's Baldwin who has this saying that's like, you think you're alone in the world or you think that your story is unique. And then you read. And it's really important that we understand our history, right? Because he who does not know his history will mm-hmm. probably repeat it. Uh, it's, it's just to say that I do feel inspired by this moment, but I also know just from historical record that, you know, Dr. King was taken out, not because I have a dream. He was taken out because white people finally started to get the memo and understand that they too were a part of this fight. Well said. This has been such an incredible conversation. And I just thank you, Teddy, for your honesty and your authenticity and, you know, your willingness to educate um, it's, I think it's everyone's responsibility to speak up and speak loud about the black experience and the black experience cannot be marginalized or compartmentalized. We all are in this together and we all should be supporting each other. So before we close, um, I would love to get like, you know, what are you, what are you reading right now? Or what, you know, is a book or two that you would recommend to the listeners to read? But something that I would recommend for readers is this play by Amiri Baraka called Dutchman. Narrative, literary narrative, and that structure that 
or dramatic narrative, I should say, that uh, really allows the reader to immerse themselves in the story, whereas I think sometimes they feel like strict prose is too dense. Um, But it's an interesting two-person play that takes place, uh, you know, in the civil rights era, let's say mid to late 60s, on a subway in New York City in which a white woman kills an upwardly mobile or striving black man. Um, oh wow! And so I think it really to this moment the Amy Cooper of it all, you know, like what could happen. Sure. Um, wow! Again, there's precedent for for all of this. Um, obviously, you know, White Fragility, Robin D'Angelo, I would recommend. Um, Absolutely. But I, I one of the most profound books um, that I've read on Black feminism is Thick by Tressie McMillan Cotton. And uh, I just think it's so important that we engage with black women thinkers. She's a brilliant sociologist, um, and she also has this very cool podcast called Here to Slay with Roxane Gay, uh, which is uh, entertaining and informative. I also love How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. I would highly recommend because it is about the action of undoing white supremacy in our everyday lives and how we hold each other accountable. Amazing. Incredible. And listeners, again, I will list this recommended reading list in the description uh, for this episode. So, Teddy, again, thank you so much for this inspiring conversation. You have been an incredible guest, and I look forward to offlining with you more about um, everything we've talked about, because this, I, for one, have broaden my understanding and have learned so much through this interaction. So thank you for being on today's show. Thank you. So listeners, this is the end of uh, episode with Teddy Tinson on the intersection of blackness and queerness. If you enjoyed this show, I highly encourage you to leave a review and until next time, be well and be safe. Thank you.